given weekend here in the United States about a hundred million people gather for church however on Easter weekend that number typically doubles why because people understand the importance of Jesus getting up and walking out of a bar or tomb. it's so significant that Sports Illustrated in 2001 called it the most remarkable comeback of all time what looked like inevitable defeat was really divine destiny and what seemed like the end was really just the beginning. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and permanently disabled the sting of death, taking the keys to hell and the grave, giving each of us that power to say, Oh, grave, where is your victory? So we're not here today because of something we have. We're here today because of something we don't have. You know what we don't have? A grave for Jesus. And if you think about it, that's what makes our Christian faith so unique. Every other religion makes a big deal out of the final resting place of its founder. Muhammad's buried under a green dome in Medina, Saudi Arabia. Buddha was cremated in India. Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon religion, he's buried in a little town in Illinois. And every other religion celebrates the final resting place. But today we rejoice not at a final resting place. We rejoice that our founder and savior got up out of the grave. Come on, we rejoice because there ain't no grave. We celebrate today because we don't have to go to an empty tomb to celebrate it. We can show up at the house of God and say because he got up out of the grave, we can get up out of the grave. So let's go to the book of John chapter 20. Now if you will, let's stand one more time for the reading of God's word. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. The synoptic gospels inform us that Mary had gone to the tomb with other women to anoint Jesus' body. She got there. She saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. I love how it says the other disciple. According to, to scholars... You know who the other disciple was? John. So my boy John's trying to be humble as he writes the book. He said, I don't even want to use my name. I'm going to be called the other disciple. The one whom loved, Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That would have been me. My younger days. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in the place by itself. The detail about the face cloth was added to show that the Lord's departure was orderly and unhurried. 
If someone had stolen the body, that cloth wouldn't have been carefully folded and put into place. So then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And when he saw that cloth that had been folded up, the Bible says he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Because of that moment, we have hope not just for our eternal state with Jesus Christ, but hope for now and the abundant life he gives. It's a secure hope that is unwavering in every season and through all circumstances that reminds us that he's a God of resurrection power and not death. Now we go to the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 52 through 53. The tomb. The tombs also were open. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And I wanted to read that today because Easter has never been about just one empty grave. Everybody here are people who are empty grave evangelists. You tell a story how you used to be bound. But because that Savior got out of that tomb, you walked out of your tomb. And you walked into resurrection power, and he's done something in your life. So I want to preach today for the next while. No grave. No grave. No grave. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your anointing. Thank you for these great people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for our team, God. I pray your blessings and your favor. God, help me to deliver your word the way you want it to deliver. In the name that's above every other name, in Jesus' name we pray. Somebody shout amen. amen. You may be seated after you give the Lord a hand clap of praise. I recently saw this picture, and it took me a minute to realize what I was looking at. The tree has been uprooted, and it's lying on the ground with its dead limbs extending along the ground. But it doesn't look like a regular dead tree because there's a resemblance of life in the new branches sprouting skyward out of the dead trunk. And as soon as I, as soon as I grasped what was happening in the picture, my faith immediately began to rise. Because in Scripture, there's a repeated theme that God takes that which is dead and brings life out of it. I want you to look at your neighbor and tell them it's not over. Come on, say it like you mean it. It's not over. I don't care what lies the enemy has told you. If God has put a promise in your heart, don't give hope on that. Don't give hope up on that promise. You hold fast to what God wants to do in your life. You hold on to your dreams. You hold out for that miracle because this book is full of people whose dreams were dashed and their hopes challenged. But by the power of God, they were brought back to life. I could spend weeks on this topic. I could speak of Abraham and Moses and, and David and Esther and Hannah and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Or how about the prophet Ezekiel who was placed in the middle of a valley full of dry dead bones that used to resemble a mighty army. But even in a place of hopelessness and despair, God gives him a word of hope for the nation. Ezekiel 37, 11 through 12. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. That's what the enemy's saying. And we are indeed cut off. The enemy's saying they're dried up, they're done, it's over. But watch verse 12. 
Therefore, prophesy, Ezekiel. Step in the middle of that dead situation and cast vision and life in the middle of what the enemy's trying to say is over, dried up, and done. And say to them, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise up, raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Seasons of death had passed over these bones, but when the... When the word and the spirit entered the picture, no grave could hold what God wanted to do for his people. Despite their condition, despite their failure, despite their mistakes, when the word and spirit got involved, what seemed like death, life began to come out of it. No grave. You got to prophesy under that same authority. You got to look at some situations in your life. Look, we all have made mistakes. If you've never made a mistake, Come see me after service. I say it all the time. We're going to write a book. We're going to make millions of dollars. But if you got failure in your life, I want you to raise your hand at some point in your life. Look around. You know what this is a church for? Imperfect people. But Spikes used to say, the pastor before me, if you find a perfect church, don't go because you'll mess it up. Nobody here is perfect. But sometimes we've got to step in the middle of our situation. We caused it or we didn't cause it. It happened to us or we, we, we made it happen to us. But we've got to step in the middle of that and say, you know what? I made a mistake. I had some failures. Somebody abused me. Somebody hurt me. And the enemy's trying to tell me my hope is dead. But I prophesy underneath the unction and the power of God that my hope is not dead. It's alive. I'm going to live again. I'm going to have joy in my life again. There's going to be an anointing on my life again. There's going to be peace on my life again. You got to prophesy a grave can be defined as a place where a broken or discarded object lies and some of us have has buried our faith and our hope today because of things we've gone through how about Job? let's talk about that for a second nobody wants to talk about Job. he went through some disturbing things he lost 10 children all his possessions gone painful balls covered his entire body that hurt so bad he was scraping them with broken pottery. He sees no way out but death. But God had something else in store for Job. Watch what happens. Job was still in the middle of suffering. His grief over the death of his children was still tearing at his heart. His body was still covered with painful sores. Yet in the middle of what looks like destruction, the Holy Spirit throat spoke through him. And I want you to put that picture of that tree back up there. Now watch this. You see this in nature. You think, was it biblical? Now go to my scripture. Job 14, 7 through 9. For there is hope for a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots... Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. If a rotten tree or stump can catch a scent of water and begin to produce again, what can God do in your life on Resurrection Sunday? If you can just get a scent of hope, a scent of what if there is hope for a tree, there is hope for me. It can rise. Again, Job describes life as returning to something that has suffered and is dead for all practical purposes. And yet, it says, at the fragrance of hope, it will spring back to life. The scent of water 
can overcome the destruction. The sin of water can overcome decay. The sin of water can overcome death. That water is the word of God who brings light out of death. And the power of life in the word of God is greater than the power of death. Job held on to hope. You know what the Bible says happened to Job? The latter part of his life was greater than the former. The second part of his story. He got twice as much as what he lost because he held on. And I feel led to prophesy in the, to somebody in this place today. You may have lost some things, but hold on. God's going to give you double. God's getting ready to bless you and anoint you and use you. There needs to be hope that begins to rise in this place that says God's not done. If there is hope for a tree, there is hope for me. I've showed up to preach to those that are worn out by life, scarred by circumstances and tattered by storms. God sent me here today to tell you don't give up because there's hope for you today. Weeping may last through the night. Hold on, y'all. Y'all can't. Calm down. It may last through the night and the next night and the next night. But joy still. I don't know how long you've been weeping. But you've got a promise. If you can hold on another night, there's coming a moment that joy is going to show back up in your life. Despair will not rule the day. Sorrow will not last forever. The clouds may eclipse the sun, but they cannot eliminate it. The night may be here now, but joy will come in the morning. Night might delay the dawn, but it cannot defeat it. Morning always shows up, not as quickly as we want, not as dramatically as we desire, but morning always shows up. And when morning shows up, joy shows up with it. Someone needs to start looking. To the future and say, no, great. I'm not going to isolate myself. I'm not going to live in depression the rest of my life. I'm not going to live as a victim of abuse the rest of my life. I'm getting up out of that grave. It's had me for too long. I'm getting, God's getting ready to resurrect some promises in my life. I don't know about you, but I've come to tell myself, Josh Payne, don't you give up. God's getting ready to do something in your life. Here's the key. Here's the key to being successful in the kingdom of God. Don't ever fall backwards. When you fall, fall forwards. Paul said, I'm forgetting those things that are behind me. And I'm reaching for those things that are before. I'm pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God. I don't want to live in the past. Now, I'm not talking about forgetting God moments because I'm getting ready to talk about that. But I'm talking about forgetting those things that is keeping you from what God wants to do in your life. Hey, there's no condemnation in him. Lay that aside. Stop condemning yourself. Find his grace and his mercy. A doctor studied people who had been through tremendous setbacks in life. Divorce, abuse, bankruptcy, grief, and the list went on and on. And he did this study and he came up with a term called learned helplessness. It's a psychological term. What they did was they noticed how people in India trained elephants. And they get them when they're little elephants before they become these mammoth animals. And they take a chain and they place the chain on their leg. And they attach the chain to a post that is cemented in the ground. And that baby elephant will go as far as the chain will let it. And then it, when it can't go any further, 
it will just stop. And it'll try to pull away, and it can't pull away. So it repeatedly will try and try till it finally decides in its mind, I, can go, I can't go any further. And that elephant will stop trying. Then as the elephant gets larger and larger, they put them in a traveling zoo or somewhere else. And all it takes to control this mammoth animal is a rope and a stake that is not cemented in the ground. That's just been placed in the ground. At any moment, that elephant can break away from that stake. But that elephant will walk. And when it feels the tug of the rope, it will stop because mentally it has learned helplessness. He's learned that, hey, I just need to give up if it gets tough. If I start trying to do right and there's a little tug and there's a little complications, I just need to quit and give up. I'm not even going to try anymore. He learned. He has learned. It has learned helplessness. And even though he's mighty enough to pull the stake out of the ground and go anywhere he wants to go, they won't because they have learned helplessness. And here we are today having the power of a resurrected Savior. And how many of us have learned helplessness? We'll start making the track toward God, but as soon as there's a little tug, automatically we go back because I don't want to fight that battle again. I don't want to struggle because it is a battle. People think living for God is just cookies and cream. It's not. It's broccoli and cauliflower. <laughs> it's complicated at times, but I refuse to allow the enemy to hold me back and I refuse to have learned helplessness in my life. I'm breaking free. I'm, the enemy doesn't have the last word over my life. God is the author and the finisher of my faith. Watch this. So the same psychologist or the same doctor did the same study. The same study that they did with the elephant. They did the same study where they took rats and they placed them in the water. Now listen to this, and those rats were swimming, and they swim for 10 minutes, and then they drown. Hey, don't be mad at me. I, I didn't do the study. I'm reading it. They drown. But you know what they did? They went and got more rats. They placed them in the water. At this time, at about nine and a half minutes, those rats were barely holding themselves up. You could see the panic. You could see that they knew they were about to go into the water. But at the nine and a half minute mark, they would reach in and pull those rats out and they would dry them off they would feed them and they would get them comfortable for about an hour then they put them back in the water and this time they didn't swim for 10 minutes they swam for 18 minutes until they started getting panicky again so they pulled them out again they did the same thing they did previously and they put them back in the water and they swim for 30 minutes they kept at this and literally when it was over those rats ended up swimming for 37 hours and this psychologist said, if you can learn helplessness, then you can learn optimism and hope. I've come to tell somebody, if you can learn negativity, you can learn positivity. If you can learn how to be helpless, you can learn how to pick yourself up again and do what's right in the eyes of God. If you can just keep believing. Because sometimes you just need a little bit of hope. Hebrews 11 and 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for. The smallest level of faith is hope. Faith is not mountain moving faith at first. 
It starts with you hoping for something, hoping to see your family and friends get off drugs, hoping that your marriage will get better, hoping that you'll meet somebody who will love you just like God loves you, hoping that you're going to get a job in a fallen economy, hoping that doors are going to open, hoping that God's going to anoint you and use you. Sometimes you don't need mountain moving faith. You just need a little bit of hope that if God brought you to it, he's going to carry you through it. Faith in its smallest embryo stage begins with hope. And you cannot lose hope because it's the answer to the grave. And I believe those rats got to thinking at nine and a half minutes the second time. I believe it. I believe they got to thinking, you know what? If we keep swimming a little bit longer, that hand that reached up, reached in this water and pulled us out and fed us and took care of us is going to reach back in and pull us out of this situation again. It's going to provide for me when I have nowhere else to turn. It's going to comfort me. And every time they would get to the point and the voice would say, give up, they decided I'm not going to lay down the helplessness because I know there's a hand that is going to reach in the middle of this water. Can I preach if he saved you one time? He'll save you again. If he ever pulled you out before, he'll pull you out again. If he ever carries you through, he'll carry you through again. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if David ever went back to the valley of Eli where he dropped Goliath with a single stone. I wonder, I wonder it was supposed to be his grave. David, you'll never whip Goliath. David said, watch what I can do in the name of the Lord. I wonder if he ever went back to that place and said, look what God did in this moment. I wonder, did Moses ever retrace his steps to that burning bush where 40 years he wondered, can God still use me because I killed a man and buried him in the sand? And then God called him, Moses, Moses. They're going to call me to do Lion King, watch. Moses, Moses. I wonder if he ever went back to that place and said, look what God has done in my life. I wonder, did Simon Peter ever row out on the Sea of Galilee to the spot to where he stepped out and began to walk on water toward Jesus? I wonder, did Lazarus ever put fresh flowers on the grave where he was dead for four days and they said it's over for Lazarus and all of a sudden, Lazarus! come forth and they rolled the stone away and that man that had been dead for four days can you go back to what you were before that stone was rolled away and you walked out of that grave I wonder but here's the real question I've got for you today how can a dead tree smell and how can a dead army hear it is because it was not up to the ear to hear nor was it up to the nose to smell because these things no longer operate and something is dead. The power and ability to spring back to life must come from that which has already and always been alive. And when God breathed in Adam, he gave him more than oxygen. He gave him an eternal being. And God was the source of life for Adam. Now watch this. My dictionary defines a whisper as speaking very softly using one's breath without one's vocal cords. The use of breath instead of vocal cords is significant because isn't that how God created Adam? He whispered into the dust. The word of God spoke Adam into existence and, and named it Adam. Adam was once a whisper, and every one of us at some point in our life was a whisper. But he gave Adam a soul, and the presence of a soul is what separates you from your pets. Your soul separates you from animals and unites you with God. But because of our soul, we wonder why we're here. 
Because of our soul, we wonder where we're going. Because of our soul, we wrestle with right and wrong. Our value system in life is always being pulled to and fro. And we express our emotions, some more than, than others. We, we've learned that some people are more emotional than others. Some people are like robots. They don't have much emotion. Some people, they just over-emotional. They're willing to share everything. But that's because we have a soul. And our soul is fragile. It feels pain of death. It feels the pain of death and knows the question of disease. Your body may suffer from illness, but your soul suffers from the question. So our soul needs an anchor, a hooking point that is sturdier than the storm. And the power and the ability to spring back to life must come from that which is alive, God's word, the source of creation. When my emotions want to give up and my flesh is tired, I've got to hear the word of the Lord. Because this word carries power to make dead things hear and smell and come back to life because it's connected to our soul. Isaiah 55 tells us God's words will not return to him void or say or said another way. It won't return without anything being accomplished. My hope today is not in my five senses. My hope today is in a word that when everything's going wrong, this is where my soul's got to go. God, I've got to go to the rock of my salvation. God, I've got to get a word. I want to put it around my workplace if you having trouble at work get you a couple words out of here write them down and put them around your home your vehicle your workplace because it's the anchor for my soul when I don't know what to good what to do when my son's having seizures and my wife is literally holding my son in her arms as he has a grandma seizure and God I don't know what else to do I've got to go to Psalms 91 he that hides in the secret place of the most high shall dwell in the shadow of the almighty God, I've got to have that word in my life. I put my son in that secret place, God. I protect him. I mark him with the blood. The enemy cannot have him. When I don't know what else to do, my soul needs an anchor that goes beyond what I can feel emotionally. It's a word for my soul. And this is key. Because when Jesus showed up, he was the fulfillment of prophecy, the word. John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the word. Before there was anything else, there was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men John 1 and 14 and the word became flesh it was so important to be the anchor of humanity that he said I've got to take something that always has been alive and always will be alive and I'm going to robe it in flesh and that word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth he was born to be the hope of his people Joseph was told you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save he shall save his people from their sins Jesus was born to a course of angels and wise men's honor and as he grew up, it's, it is evident that this was a man born to greatness, even to those who hated him. People came from nearly 100 miles away to see him. And huge crowds gathered wherever he preached. He fed thousands with just a few loaves and fish. Matthew 4 and 24 tells us, his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick people, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them all. He even raised Lazarus from the dead, called him out of the grave. He was their hope. So when they placed him in the grave, it should have been the end because they didn't just bury his body, they buried their hope, expectations, trust, and faith. Especially 
the two main characters in our story, Simon Peter, man, what a guy this, this man is. Stubborn, short-tempered, rebellious at times. He was a fisherman, not particularly well-educated, not well-connected, not one of the up-and-coming in his culture, just a regular guy doing regular guy stuff but Jesus showed up on his lake shore one day and said follow me and Simon did I think he did it because Jesus did this remarkable phenomenon where he told Simon and his friends to let down their nets and catch some fish however it was the wrong time of the day it was the wrong part of the lake and they had been fishing all night and they caught nothing but they did what he said, and they caught so many fish that their nets began to break. And Simon thought to himself, this isn't a guy who knows stuff. This is a guy who makes stuff happen. So Simon said, yeah, I'll follow you. Count me in. And he followed him. And Simon saw Jesus heal people. He saw people whose legs had never been able to support their weight suddenly they started dancing he saw people with leprosy made clean after Jesus touched them you didn't touch a leopard back then somebody who had leprosy they were untouchable but not to Jesus he touched the leper he sat down with sinners he made a place for the unclean and the common Simon saw Jesus calm storms not figurative storms but literal ones see Simon saw all of that and Simon started to hope that Jesus was everything he said he was, a savior that showed up to save people. And somewhere along the way, Jesus gave Simon a new name. Peter, you're not going to be Simon, you're going to be Peter, which means the rock. And he started to hope that this was his new identity. He wouldn't be this guy that he used to be. Now he's going to be strong for the Lord. Then you have Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. You got to get this, guys, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. You got Mary Magdalene that's in our story. The one who I think would have been really convenient to just leave her out the Bible. Let's just be real today. Her name was Mary Magdalene and she wasn't a picture of purity. Before she knew Jesus, she had seven demons. She was a prisoner of seven afflictions. What, what might this list include? Addiction, depression, loneliness, shame, fear. Maybe, maybe she'd been abused and abandoned. The number seven is sometimes used in the Bible to describe completeness. It could be that Mary Magdalene was completely consumed with troubles and an un, undealt sin in her life led to demonic control of her actual life. These spirits were in control of her. But then something happened. Jesus stepped into her world, and when he spoke, demons fled. Jesus set her free. He told the demons to get out, and they fled. He took authority and dominion and said, Mary Magdalene, I'm going to give you a new life. They thought they had you buried, but they don't have any control over you. And for the first time in a long time, the oppressive forces were gone, banished, evicted, and Mary Magdalene could sleep well at eat enough and smile again the face face in the mirror was an anguish Jesus restored life to her death and we could talk about so many other people that Jesus showed up what about the adulterous woman they threw threw her at his feet and said what are you going to do with her we called her in the act of adultery and they wanted to judge her Jesus began to kneel down they brought their rocks to stone her and Jesus began to kneel down he said thou without sin cast the first stone all of a sudden, those rocks of judgment begin to fall on the ground. He looked at her and said, where are your accusers? There is none. Go and sin no more. What about the man they let down through the roof? 
And Jesus forgave his sins before he ever healed his body because he was so powerful that he knew everything about everybody, but he still loved them. Oh, I could preach on that for a while. One thing is to love people. Another thing is to know something about people and still love them. Jesus said, I showed up not to condemn you or judge you. I showed up to love you and forgive you. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. But the problem with most of us is we're still stuck in the grave stage. And we're not living in the grave stage. We've got to get out of the grave. And we've got to step into grace. I want the enemy to mail some things to my house that used to disturb me and shake me up. But they don't even bother me no more because he mailed it to the wrong address. I used to live there. But I don't live in the grave. I live in grace now. His followers had heard what Jesus said. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And who, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And they started to believe and to hope that it was all true. That he was really who he said he was. And then they crucified him. Religious leaders insisted that he didn't care about their rules and stunned that he would challenge their authority. They arrested him, planted some false witnesses against him, staged a mockery of a trial, and they convicted him. The religious leaders took him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who had, had, had him beaten publicly, whipped to within an inch of his life, and nailed to a cross where he died. And just to be sure, some of the attending soldiers took a spear and they thrust it into his side and they pronounced it done it's over two men Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus a dissenting member of the Jewish ruling council took his body and carried it to the tomb of Joseph that he owned and there they buried his body along with their hopes and their belief and I really think it's important to understand this a grave remember is something where we bury our brokenness and our discarded objects of our life. And they buried their broken faith in him and with him. And no one, no one buried him with the expectation that this was a temporary condition. Everyone thought it was over. After all, if he had really been the Messiah, would he allow this to happen? God would never have let him die. So from their perspective, they had been wrong. He had been wrong. And the proof was in the grave along with their hopes, their beliefs, and their faith. And they spent the next few days in shock trying to come to grips with the death of a Savior that they gave everything to. And I doubt that they made much progress because grief is such a powerful thing that the first few days after the death of someone, you really, you really aren't. In your right mind because grief has such a powerful control over you that you're just surviving. You're not thriving. And when Sunday came, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb to finish the work she had begun on Friday. And Simon Peter, guess what he did? He fled when all this was going on, but not Mary Magdalene. She was there when they pounded the nails in his hands. She heard the hammer. When they pierced his side with a spear, she saw the blood. When they lowered his body from the cross, she was there to help prepare it for burial. And on Friday, Mary Magdalene watched Jesus die. On Saturday, she observed a sad Sabbath. And on Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb while it was still dark. She knew nothing of the empty tomb. She came with no other motive except to wash the remaining clots of blood 
off his beard. Hope was dead. Faith buried. But when she arrived at the tomb that day, the bad news became worse. Mary Magdalene saw the stone had been taken away. Assuming that grave robbers had taken the body, she hurried back down the trail until she found Simon Peter. Simon Peter and John and told them that they had taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And Peter and John ran to the graveside and John was faster, but Peter was bolder. He stepped inside and John followed him. Peter saw the empty slab and stared, but John saw the empty slab and believed. The evidence all started coming together. John said, Simon Peter, do you, do you realize what we're looking at? He got up. He's not here. He is who he said that he was. Simon Peter, he's alive. Musicians, you can come. So Peter and John hurried to tell the others. And we expect the camera lens to follow Peter and John as they run to tell the others. After all, they were apostles, future authors of epistles. They composed two-thirds of the inner circle. We expect John to describe what the apostles did next, but he doesn't. He tells the story of the one who stayed by the lens doesn't follow John and Simon Peter. The lens stays on the woman that most of us would have never put in the word of God. Mary Magdalene stood at the tomb weeping. Her face was awash with tears. Her shoulders heaved with sobs. She felt alone. It was just Mary Magdalene by herself. Her despair as she looked at a vacant tomb not knowing what was going on. And as she wept, she stooped down into the tomb. She saw two angels, one at the head where Jesus once laid, and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. These angels said unto thee, woman, why are you weeping? Mary Magdalene mistook the angels for men. It's easy to imagine why. It was still dark outside. Even darker in the tomb, her eyes were tear-filled. She had no reason to think angels would be in the tomb. Bone diggers, maybe. Caretakers, maybe. But her Saturday was too dark to expect the presence of angels on Sunday. We've all been there. They have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Mary's world had officially hit rock bottom. Her master murdered, his body buried in a borrowed grave, his tomb robbed, his body stolen. Now two strangers were sitting on the slab where his body had laid, and sorrow was intermingled with anger. And Mary Magdalene, who was once buried by seven demonic spirits, sits there confused. And watch what happens. John 20, 14 through 16. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She didn't, she didn't know it was Jesus. You ever been there? You're in the middle of a storm. And you know somebody's with you, but you don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I love Jesus. So much sarcasm in his voice. Listen. He could have just showed up and said, Mary, it's me. He said, woman, try that when you get home. Woman, why are you weeping? Who 
is it that you seek him? The Bible says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She was still so convinced. She said, if you took him, it's okay, I forgive you. But if you can just tell me where his body is. Because I still want to be close to Jesus. Even though he's supposed to be dead, you don't understand what he did for my life. Wherever he is, I still want to be close to him. And I love it. Then all of a sudden, it says, Jesus said to her, Mary, I don't know. I don't know if it was the inflection in his voice or the tone. I don't know if it was the Galilean accent, but I believe she went back to when her name was spoken that brought her out of that grave when she was bound by thorns. When she heard him call her by name, she knew the source. And the lights come on. And the windows came open. And not just understanding, but hope and belief and faith came flooding back to her soul because she realized that, hey, that's the one. That's the one who set me free. She turned to him and said, Rabboni, my loving Savior and my teacher. And in a second, in a pivot of the neck, in the moment of time it took her to rotate her head from this way to that, her world went from death and dead to alive and hope and power and his This moment serves as a sacred role in the Easter story because it reminds us that Jesus is the conquering king and he is the good shepherd, that he has the power over death. But it also reminds me that Jesus has a soft spot for Mary Magdalene's. It reminds me that Jesus cares about the broken more than he does anything else. Listen, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. You don't have to look at me and say, that preacher got it all together. Sorry to disappoint. My life is filled with valleys of depression and sorrow. Some of you heard me say that I'm obsessive compulsive. I got OCD, ADHD. But can I tell you, I've heard him call my name like Mary heard him call her name. I've seen God take a young boy who wasn't supposed to be where he is today and he helped me with every disorder that I've got and every bit of depression that I've faced and every bit of emotional struggle. I was telling somebody, and I'm not going to go much longer, I was telling somebody that I was reading an article that depressed me this week because it said when you preach, don't look at your notes. I said, well, I failed. read my notes because I don't like crowds so what I do Monday through Friday is I pray God let me communicate your words through who I am because I'm not anybody else so to know that Jesus takes me an introvert 
with everything I've got working against me and says, and says, watch what I do with this boy's life. So when he walked out of that tomb and he waited around for Mary Magdalene, I can relate to that, that Jesus stayed around long enough to let me know I got you, Josh. I got you. I know you got a lot working against you, but don't worry about it. You don't fit the mold, but I can do something in your life. Let's stand. No grave for Mary meant forgiveness. It meant her deliverance was real. It meant that her faith would carry her through. By the way, you know what you call an empty grave? I don't either. I can tell you what I think it is. No grave. It's a hole in the ground or a dent in the dirt or a cleft in the rock or whatever, but it's no grave. And that's why we're here today. We're not here today because of a book we have. We do have a Bible, but it's not just because of a book we have that tells us that we have a Savior. We're here because there literally is a tomb that is empty. You can go to where it's at. There's no Savior there. It is no grave. And if there's no grave for Jesus because he's risen, then there's no grave for you. One day there, in the twinkling of an eye, he's going to come back and we're all going to be called up. But right now, there are things that have been holding you down. Listen, you're here for one of two reasons today. You're here to celebrate that he took you out the grave. But the second reason is you're here because you need to get out the grave. Watch this. Before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a death and there has to be a burial. Death is repentance. God, I'm sorry. You know what the burial is? I've been baptized with him. I've been buried with him. And after I'm buried with him, I can come out of the grave. If you want to be baptized, we got water and robes today. Because it's time for you to come out of your grave. He didn't stay dead. He got up. Now watch Romans 8 and 11, and I'm done. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you know, why Mary, you know where Mary went after Jesus got up? Go read it. Brother Will, you know where she was at? In the upper room, waiting on the promise. And let me ask you a question. If just her deliverance was enough, and just witnessing his resurrection was enough, why did she take the march to Jerusalem? You know why? Because one thing is to be delivered, but it's another thing to be filled. And Mary said, all these spirits were cast out of me. I was delivered. But Jesus told me that when he ascends, that his spirit is going to descend on an upper room and he's going to fill people with resurrection power. And Mary says, I don't only want to be delivered, I want to be filled. I want to be empowered from on high. 
Watch this. I asked you the question at the beginning. I want to ask you right now. How many have made some monumental mistakes in your life? got you. The enemy thought he had me, but it's all right, Mary, I got you. And I may not know everybody's name in this place today, but I can guarantee you this, he does. And you know what he's saying on this resurrection Sunday morning? You know what he's telling you? Shame. Don't let the enemy bury you. I got you. I know it's been tough. We're going down